Well, welcome back to the Dad's Divorce Cordell Cordell and Men's Divorce Podcast. I'm Scott Trout, CEO and managing partner of Cordell and Cordell, as we continue to bring you information regarding, regarding everything family law. Uh, rolling out of COVID-19, and we're now just focusing more on spot issues uh, that men face when they're going through divorce, either before, during, and after, and today is no different, and always the word of caution, that you can't take this as legal advice, as always, uh, this is more educational and informational for you to create some talking points that you can bring to your attorney, and make sure that uh, these things aren't taken as such, and that your facts and circumstances are, are wildly different from guy to guy, and we want to make sure that just guide you down the right path. And, and as always, we're available for a consultation. If after listening to this or you have other questions, you can reach out to us at 866-DADS-LAW, or you can find us on the web at cordellcordell.com. I'm joined by our frequent guest, Jonathan Wynn, out in Utah. Welcome, Jonathan. Good morning. And thanks for joining. And you know what a great topic we want to talk about because I think it's uh, every guy that faces uh, spousal support maintenance or alimony, it's kind of an interchangeable use of those terms. Uh, they have a question about it, you know, and it's always, when does it end? Uh, what happens in this cohabitation? I think that's a huge one uh, that guys watching and listening right now are going to be jumping all over because it happens. And so maybe we can start with um, talking a little bit about uh, the idea of this alimony, this maintenance, this spousal support, and, and cohabitation in general. And, and I know we, you, you talked a little bit about uh, how it ends and uh, paying people forever. So I'll just kind of turn it over to you to talk a little bit about it. Thanks, Scott. You know, alimony is, a, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of our, of our divorce uh, cases. You know, you look at a uh, hundred years of history of alimony and, and how the movements have changed things. I mean, you go back a hundred years ago and look at the the employment availability for, for females mm -hmm. and the need for alimony then was, was a huge need. When, when a male divorced a female, her ability to support herself is very different 150, 200 years ago than it is now. And with gender equality the way it is, alimony is slowly dying. Uh, and you would think that the, the more that the equality in the workplace, the more you see more moms working outside the home, the less you're going to see alimony. But we're not quite seeing that in the courts. Yeah. Matter of fact, we've actually seen the courts take some different turns uh, and a cohabitation is a great example of a of a turn uh, overall the the overarching you know concept of alimony and the public policy of that is is trying to equalize the the standard of living between a, a husband and a wife after the marriage they kind of provide an equalized income for them so they can kind of state the same standards but what we're kind of seeing happening is kind of like in the great depression era you know the the government was paying farmers not to grow crops and now you know, ex-husbands are paying wives not to go get remarried because until they get remarried, that alimony goes. And so, right. you know, a wife who, who married a, a more wealthy husband, she's not likely to go get married to a less wealthy guy because it's going to be an economic downfall for her if she goes and right. gets remarried. Yeah, complete disincentive. I mean, walking away, like nothing like creating a policy, a rule, a judgment that, that completely destroys the idea of the institution of marriage, isn't it? It is, yeah, and and what it does is it essentially creates a, a a whole network of females who they can't afford to marry a guy unless that guy's making more than their ex-husband is, and so it takes their options of marriage and, and decreases it substantially and says, look, if you can't pay me what my ex-husband's paying me, you know what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is a long-term romantic relationship, right? 
And yet, as you suggest, I mean, you go back years and, and the whole establishment of it made sense back then. And I've been doing a lot of interviews and I, and actually I think in some regards, the tables have flipped and I call it manimony where more guys are eligible now for maintenance because they've made the decision with their spouse who's now working because of the gender equality or because of the roles of, of two parents uh, where one goes to work and perhaps it's a female and, and shin mom and she's decided to work and dad's decided to stay at home and now he's eligible. But it's interesting, we haven't really taken that full switch of, uh, of, a, of a observation and understanding where guys could be eligible and that's why I call it manimony because you may have maybe 20% of guys are eligible under the rules, but only 9% actually get it. So, you know, the whole uh, development and transformation of alimony is, is really amazing, even over the last 27 years that I've been practicing. Yeah. So what I wanted to kind of dig into today is, is the, the in-between. You know, you've got single and you've got married. And, and we see a very large population of people who are kind of in-between. Now, that in, in part is due to, a, we have a society in whole that people are living together without getting married. You know, 150 years ago, that wasn't as common. Today, it's much more common for, for consenting adults to live together outside the bonds of marriage. And so it's, it's kind of figuring out what does that do with alimony? Mm -hmm. And what about, you know, we, we keep using the word, and I've done it with my clients, and we often as lawyers forget, we talk about cohabitation. And so guys are going to want to, you hear it around the country, there are some states that actually talk about cohabitation and what is needed to be proven in order to uh, terminate maintenance or maybe, but what is cohabitation, at least from a Utah perspective? Yeah, and you know, uh, I guess the underlying concept there is in almost all the jurisdictions, uh, there's some sort of bar to alimony once a woman is cohabiting with a man. Mm -hmm. uh, in Utah, they, they have a three-part test for cohabitation. And, and what's important to know is this test, as, as everything's kind of developed over time. Uh, initially, cohabitation was just a two-part test. Uh, number one, that you lived in a common residence with, a, with another person. And number two, that you had a sexual relationship. Now, in the last probably 15 years or so, we've seen emerging in a lot of jurisdictions this third test, which is that you're living together akin to husband and wife. It kind of adds this whole other factor of almost like a almost like a common law marriage that makes cohabitation substantially harder to prove than than the traditional just yeah, sexual relationship and and common residency. Yeah, you know, you think about. Uh, you know, I spend the night there infrequently, or you know, you, you you talk about they each have two residences, but is that something where a court's going to look at it under the guise of how you know mom has a home, boyfriend has a home, but she's staying over there? Is time a factor? Is up what the courts look into? Do they look at how frequently, um, as you say, the, the you know the bonds of marriage or the guise of a marriage? But is it is time come into play here? Oh, definitely. Uh, I recently did a trial on, on this particular issue, and. And in preparation of the trial, I pulled every cohabitation case we had in, in Utah. I, I listed, you know, what are the factors in that case? How does that apply to my case? And, and there were several cases where courts, you know, you see district judges going different directions because there isn't as much a standard as we want to see. Uh, but consistently, they're looking at, you know, mailing address. You know, where is, what's on your driver's license? Mm -hmm. Is there just one house? Are you both on a lease? Are you both on a mortgage? Uh, but there are cases where, if you've got two apartments and they spend Monday and Tuesday together in one and Wednesday and Thursday together in the other, the court says, yeah, that's still cohabitation. That's just different than a, a married couple going to a cabin on the weekend. 
Right. Uh, they really do look at the time. And it seems like we're having more and more educated ex-spouses who are saying, okay, how close to the line can I get to be with my boyfriend, my, my partner, without crossing the line and losing my alimony? And they right. start trying to walk that line. Yeah, and I think that's why it isn't just a singular look. As you suggest, you you want to look at a number of factors, like where is the primary residence? You know, what is, how much time are they spending? And I guess one of the factors becomes even uh, money. Are they sharing expenses? Are they contributing to the other? Or is your boyfriend contributing to her expenses by living there? Isn't that also a factor of looking at money? Exactly. So the the third factor I discussed previously, this uh, this a relationship akin to husband and wife, what they're looking at there is shared expenses. Do they do they act like a partnership, or is it independent relationships? They're going to look at you know is there is there joint bills? Do they do they talk to each other about how they're spending their money? Uh, do they have anything in common? You know, insurance on their vehicles is common, or sharing cars, or just things that we see as a married couple that we do every day. Are mm-hmm. this is this couple kind of living that lifestyle financially? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you go into, and I've had a case before uh, where we tried to argue cohabitation and the defense simply was, well, it's not a sexual relationship. We're just friends. Uh, Does that come into play? It definitely is. And, you know, that's probably one of the hardest factors to prove because Mm -hmm. it's not out there. I mean, what people do in their bedrooms is a very private thing. Uh, Our most success in, in trying to show a sexual relationship has been subpoenaing their text messaging or their Facebook, Instagram. Uh, typically, you can find something like, you know, last night was great, thanks, you know, mm-hmm. within a stream of a year of text messages. Uh, usually, you know, people in what they consider a private conversations will give you at least some evidence. Uh, other times, you just have to get them on a, a deposition and, and really, really cross-examine that person to, to get out the evidence that, yes, you are having a sexual relationship. Talking about social media, I think that's, as you suggest, as you gather evidence, uh, you know, social media, I've talked a lot about its negatives, but, you know, if you're going to stay away from it, the positives are, you know, looking at our social media and and we're going to pop a picture on the screen because I think that that can speak volumes uh, that you came up with this picture. Talk a little bit about what this picture could be used to help prove cohabitation. Yeah, this, this was a, this was actually a lot of fun. Uh, I had a case where, where the, the, the wife in this picture was, was renting a house and she had a gentleman who was, quote, renting the basement. And uh, they came into court and said, hey, we're not cohabiting. We're, he's just a renter. He pays me rent every month. He rents my basement. And I had actually gone on Facebook, uh, you know, looking at her just profile pictures. I didn't even subpoena. I just went on Facebook and I found this picture on Facebook. So I printed it and it was a big print. And in my opening statement, I stuck it up on an easel right there in front of the judge. And then I left it there the entire trial. Yeah. And every time, you know, the, the, the other attorney was cross-examining this guy and he's saying, oh no, we're, we're not in a romantic relationship. I saw the judge turn his head and, and look at the picture again and then look back at the guy like, really? And yeah. here they are wearing matching shirts, they're color coordinated and, uh, it was just a perfect example of saying, hey, this is not just a, a renter-landlord situation. There's clearly a romantic partnership going on yeah. here in this picture. What a nice picture of a family, right? You know, because exactly. you, you show a stranger, they're going to say, what a wonderful family. I think that's the word they would use, and I think that's, that's the kind of evidence that I think is so 
damning for the other side. And, and, you know, guys always say, well, how do I prove it? Well, there's a great example of how you go about helping to prove uh, your case in a cohabitation. For some dads out there, the coronavirus pandemic has become a pretext to limit access to their children. Other dads have been pushed out of key decisions affecting their children's lives. If you're one of those dads, Cordell & Cordell is here for you, as always, but with expanded services. We can meet you in person or by video conference on weekdays, evenings, or weekends. Our goal is to step up our service to meet your needs now. Another thing we should probably talk about is why why a personal uh, a private investigator is important. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the things you want to be careful of, uh, you know, they do cost a little more money, but especially in Utah, we have some particular stalking injunction laws, uh, privacy laws. Uh, if you do it yourself, help, and you go out there and think I'm gonna I'm gonna follow my ex-wife, I'm gonna put trackers on her car, I'm gonna put cameras in her bushes, uh, you could get in trouble. Uh, private investigators kind of have a, a get out of jail free card. They can do a little bit more within their own confines of their guidelines. Uh, and it kind of allows a protection to our clients. Uh, plus they know what they're doing and they're going to be yeah. professional if you get a good one. Yeah. I think it is so key. I mean, many guys are constantly there, you know, I know she's got a boyfriend or my, you know, how do I go out proving all this? And it is, I think before, or even if you decide to file, you must gather that evidence. You've got, you know, you're going to invest a lot of money in an attorney and, and moving forward in an emotional way. Uh, and it takes tolls on physically, psychologically, obviously and invest the money, but control the expenses. I think that's the one thing I always tell clients that if you're going to get a private investigator, have that conversation, let's set a budget, get exactly what they can do for that amount of money. And let's get the best evidence that we can to, to present that to trial. Yeah, I think uh, getting your attorney on board probably first, usually most attorneys are going to have somebody they've already worked with. They already know exactly what they're looking for. Uh, and especially where we've talked about all these different factors in the laws that are very specific to the states. Those attorneys know exactly what they need. Private investigators probably aren't going to have that same amount of legal information. So having the attorney on board first, then that attorney can tell the private investigator, here's exactly what I need. Here's yep. the pattern I need. Here's how much time I need so that the clients aren't overpaying or underpaying and not getting what they need ahead of time. Yeah. You know, the other thing that comes into play, um, and I know uh, being engaged, right? I've had one where um, ex-wife was engaged for years um, and they never intended to get married until the alimony was, you know, could, they could push as far as they could. Uh, can you use that uh, against them in terms of this long-term engagement to show some sort of cohabitation? Oh, definitely. Uh, I, I had a similar case where in a deposition, I, I was asking the gentleman when he planned to get married to her, and he said, oh, August of such and such a year. And I looked at the divorce decree and said, oh, that's the month after alimony ends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they wouldn't ever admit that's why, but the court, mm -hmm. I think, definitely considers, you know, what type of relationship is this? Mm -hmm. uh, again, going to that, if you've got a common abode, you know, and if you've got a sexual relationship, then, then what's holding back from the cohabitation? Right. Uh, yeah. And, it, and, you know, the, the kind of the, the other side is same sex. Obviously, we've had that. I've, I've you know, been involved where um, wife or ex-wife has gone out and started cohabitating with someone of the, of the same sex and became in a very intimate and what ultimately turned into a sexual relationship. 
same thing, no problems going in a cohabitation argument as well? Right. The factors apply equality. I mean, there, there really is no distinguishing factors there. Right. They're going to look at the same, you know, you know, whether you can prove the common residency. The sex relationship is a little bit harder to prove because the, the general traditions go against mm-hmm. you. But usually going through things like social media, uh, you can find enough information to kind of show, hey, no, this still is a, a sexual relationship. Yeah. So the traditional forms of, you know, that your lawyer can do, we've talked about the private investigator. Obviously, I, I imagine depositions, discovery, interrogatories, requests for production of documents, bank statements, credit cards, all that comes into play to help prove your case? Exactly. Uh, you're looking at, you know, rental agreements, uh, credit card statements. You're looking at who's buying what. Uh, it could be just as simple as household duties. Mm-hmm. Who cooks dinner? Who does laundry? Does, you know, do they do each other's laundry? Again, you know, and you take it, you, the best way I think you try to do is you look at what a landlord and, and a tenant, you know, relationship is, and you compare that to a husband and wife. And on the scale of the two, where are they falling? Are they closer to landlord tenant? Or are they closer to husband and wife? Yeah. Are they closer to college roommates? Or are they closer to husband and wife? And college roommates don't do each other's laundry. College <laughs> roommates may cook a meal once a week together, but they're not going to cook every night and, eat, and make each other's lunch. Right. Exactly. Or, you know, just roommates, right? I mean, that is, there is a fine line and it does take a, a lot uh, to, to prove it and, and to, you know, get through to those elements. But there, as you've suggested today, there are certain ways to do it and, and it's certainly worth it, especially when it comes to this long-term alimony. Uh, and really many guys come and say, gosh, it's so unfair that, that she can behave in a manner, engage in, in a pseudo marriage, uh, but not call it that because it's in her best interest financially to do it. And it's crazy. Yeah. And I think one of the the hardest thing for guys out there is, is the timing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I was playing a game with my kids at their school. It was kind of a minute to win it kind of game where you took a bunch of nuts and you stacked them on top of each other and you saw who could stack the, the, the nuts the highest. And obviously the problem was when you got to a certain level, the whole tower would tip over and then the time would be out and you'd have one nut and you'd lose the game. That's very similar to the alimony, you know, cohabitation clauses is you don't want to sit there and gather evidence for three years because you're paying her alimony for for three years. And it usually doesn't end until you actually get in there and file. But if you file too early, you might go in there and not have enough evidence because as soon as you file, guess what? Those guys split. And so you're weighing and balancing, you know, do I have enough evidence to file? Do I want to show my cards yet? Or do I want to wait another four or five months? Um, We typically would say we want a good six months of cohabitation before we actually file. That's a solid number, but different jurisdictions are gonna have different laws and you're gonna to wanna to definitely know your jurisdiction. How much time do you have to get solid before you, you actually you know show your cards the other side? Yeah, completely. Well, you know, that's all the time we have, but wonderful stuff. And I think, you know, we're looking for what can I do? What, what must I do? What should I do? These are all the answers we've just given guys right now when they've got a judgment against them with spousal support and they're moving forward and they're trying to figure out, well, how long am I going to pay, you know, and let her live her life and she's moved on, but I can't kind of thing. So thanks, Jonathan. Really great information for guys, great tips and uh, great action points for them to, to go seek some advice from a lawyer. So thanks for joining. You're welcome. Have a good day. So as always, we'll continue to bring you information on family law, tips for guys going through before, during, and after divorce that will try to give you some some talking points that you can seek out the advice of an attorney. Obviously, as we always say, find someone who really just focuses only or exclusively on family law. That's your best bet. Obviously, we're available at 866-DADS-LAW or on the web at Cordell Cordell. 
www.thepeopleshow.com. We're happy to meet with you telephonically, virtually, or in person where appropriate, keeping in mind your health and safety. Tune into our town hall this week as we're coming up and each month moving forward, but we'll be able to take your questions live and get you answers from our panel of Cordell and Cordell attorneys. Until next time, have a great week.